bit like that video, the last year has had lots of unexpected twists and turns. It has been difficult, hasn't it? It has been painful at times. And actually, even doing church at home has been difficult, hasn't it? It has felt painful not to be able to be together. But that is what I want to say, that even though it has been painful, I want to raise everyone's expectations today. And so I'm going to ask you to do something. And I'm going to check with my friends later to see if they did it. And I'm going to ask my kids as well. I want you to actually stand up right now. You might have got a little bit too cozy in your sofa. So I do want you to stand up. I want you to stretch your arms. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you do a workout. But I want you to circle your shoulders. You can touch your toes. You can pat your dog. Okay, have you woken up? Are you with me? Okay, I've now got a pop quiz for you. So you can shout out the answers to the screen. You can talk to the person next to you or talk to the cat. And here is the first question. Actually, it's only one question. It's a really easy pop quiz. And you need to answer A, B, or C. So as my friend Jackie would say, right about now, where's your head at? So are you A, feeling hungry for God? B, are you feeling like none of what we have been preaching on in the last few months is relevant for you? Or C, are you feeling like, do you know what, I've heard it all before? I'm quite curious to know how many A's, B's and C's there are, and if you want to, you can put them in the chat. We've all got different feelings right now, haven't we? Our experiences of lockdown have been different for all of us. But what I want to do is raise our expectations this morning. I want to raise our expectations about the ability to meet with God, for God to come and meet with you this morning. We are continuing on our series of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. And to be honest, when James gave me this passage, I was like, thanks, you have stitched me up. This is the story about the talking snake coming to Adam and Eve and tempting them to eat the forbidden fruit. So looking at it at first glance, I felt slightly overwhelmed. And some of you might immediately be thinking, yes, I answered B. This story is not relevant for my situation. And some of you might have been like, yeah, that's definitely a C moment. I have heard this story a hundred times before. But you know what? It says in this book, in the Bible, that the word of God is living and active and it is sharper than a double-edged sword. It says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting and training us in righteousness. And Jesus himself said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink and streams of living water will flow from him. And you know what? I really believe that. I believe that with all of my heart, that God wants to speak into your situation today and that he is going to bring freedom for many people that are struggling So wherever you're at this morning, whether you're hungry for Jesus, whether you're desperately needing help or you just need your faith to be stirred again, I'm just going to pray for a moment now and I'm going to leave a gap so that you can tell God where you are at. Father God, we come to you now as your children and I just want to thank you that you love every single person who is listening to this message today. God, you know exactly where we're at and exactly how we're feeling. And we just want to tell you now, God, what's been going on in our lives and in our hearts. And Father, I thank you that no matter how we feel, you are good, that you are the same yesterday, today and tomorrow, and that you've promised that as we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So... (laughs) 
Some of you might not have been um, with us on this journey through Genesis, so I'm just going to take a moment to recap on the story so far. Now, Genesis is the beginning of one big story that is told throughout the Bible, a story about sonship, rescue and restoration. That is the one big story that the Bible tells. And Genesis is like a blueprint for the things that are to come. It was written by Moses and it is a revelation about who God is. Moses wasn't trying to prove the existence of God when he wrote it. The stunning design, the intricacies, the balance of creation point to the fact that there is a creator. But Moses wrote Genesis to help us understand who God is and who we are. In chapters 1 and 2, we're told that from absolutely nothing and by his spirit, God creates the whole earth. The skies, the land, the stars, the moon, the sun, the plants, the animals and the birds. And he then goes on to make Adam and Eve in his image to be like him, which is insanely dignifying. And then he breathes his life into them. Every human being has the breath of God in them. And then the Bible says that God declares what he's made to be very good. And this really cracks me up because it is like the biggest understatement of all time. I want you to take a moment to think about your proudest creation. Maybe that was a cake you've made. Maybe it was some shelves that you've put up. Maybe it was a makeover that you did. And maybe you felt really proud, like, yeah, that was very good. Well, God is so awesome that what would leave us speechless with self-admiration if we had made even one of the things that God had made. If we made this plant, we'd be like, wow, that is amazing. But God says it's very good because he is so awesome. It doesn't even begin to compare. His creation doesn't even begin to compare with how awesome he is. God is so humble. I find that statement amazing. It is very good. It's true. It is very good, but it's nothing compared to the creator himself. And God then goes on to um, plant a beautiful, flourishing garden where he places Adam and Eve. And he says, you can tend this garden and you can enjoy being here with me. And at the center of the garden, God places the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says to Adam, you are free to eat from any of the trees except this one, because when you do, you will die. And so there's a boundary that's put around the tree. But there is no lack of joy. There is no pain. There is no fear. There's no tension, no difficulty. They have everything they need. It is utterly perfect. So that's where we pick up on the story. So I'm going to read now Genesis 3, 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must, not eat tree, uh, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And the story goes on to tell how they were then filled with regret and shame. They hide from God, who pronounces a curse on the serpent, and consequences for Adam and Eve. So they are actually sent from the garden 
And this all sounds quite bleak, doesn't it? But we have to remember, this is actually only the beginning of the most amazing rescue plan for mankind. So this is quite a whoa story. What a story. You may have heard it a hundred times before. This might be the first time. It is pretty crazy, isn't it? Adam and Eve in paradise, a snake coming along, speaking to them, tempting them to eat forbidden fruit. And if you're anything like me, your head is probably like, whoa, what is going on? Your brain is buzzing with questions. It's hard not to feel like, what the heck is going on? And what on earth has this got to do with my life right now? Well, this story has been described as the greatest tragedy in human history. A bit like little Simba in The Lion King being swindled out of his inheritance and then having to flee his home after eating the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve lose their home. They lose their sense of peace and they can no longer enjoy their inheritance, all that God had intended for them. And this is described as the fall of man. Mankind's relationship with God has changed. And as a consequence, sickness, suffering and death all enter the world and will remain until Jesus returns again. And this is the world we live in. We all know about suffering. So how did something so monumental happen from eating a piece of fruit? Did that actually really happen? Well, the way Genesis is written, it is written like a factual narrative. That's the style it is, it is written as something that did really happen. How on earth, though, did a snake convince Adam and Eve to disobey God? And it's really important right now to say, Eve and Adam, because often people have talked about it being Eve, but actually Adam was there. And for the scholars out there, we know this because when the snake speaks, he uses the plural version of you. So although Adam doesn't say anything, his silence and his inaction make him equally complicit in everything that follows. So here you have Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, this incredible paradise, when one day a snake starts speaking to Eve. Now, if that happened to me or you today, I'm sure we would be totally, totally freaked out. But Eve has actually got no reason to fear because all she's ever known is the love of her husband and the goodness and provision of God. And God had already declared everything he made, including the animals, to be good. But the serpent is described as being more crafty than any of the other animals God had made. So clearly there is something more to this creature than meets the eye. Who is this snake then? Some people have argued that the snake is a metaphor for evil. But the Bible presents the snake as a real animal. And there is no reason for us to disbelieve that he was therefore able to speak. Now, here in this passage in Genesis, the snake isn't given a name. But in later passages, in, including John 8 and Revelation 12, the Bible talks about the devil as the ancient serpent and the father of all lives. And they make it clear that the snake in the garden, the lying snake, is Satan. Now, the first thing to say about the serpent is that he had been made by God. He was not and is not equal to God. He is not an evil power that has always existed in equal measure, but in opposition to God, like the dark side of the force. He was created. But Satan was not originally evil. 
And this passage doesn't even try to explain the mystery surrounding the origin of evil. But later in the Bible that we are told that Satan was an angel that became proud and wanted to be worshipped, so he was cast out of heaven. But now here he is, taking the form of a crafty snake and speaking to Eve. And the word used to describe the snake as crafty can also mean prudent or wise. But clearly, rebelling against God meant that this strength had become twisted. Now, we've got to understand that Satan is real. And I think that Christians can fall into two equally dangerous camps on this subject. One, they can deny Satan's power and presence in the world and be naive to the dangers of the occult. Or two, they can live in fear of him. Now, we need to acknowledge Satan's existence in order to fully appreciate what Jesus has done on the cross. The Bible says the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the work of the evil one. Jesus has destroyed the power of the devil and his works over man. So Christians don't need to fear him because he is a defeated enemy. It says in Colossians 2.15 that Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. So we don't need to fear the devil. He is real, but we need to ask, how was it that he convinced Adam and Eve to disobey God? We need to think about this because he is the same enemy to us today, an enemy who is bent on lying, stealing and destroying the lives of God's children. So the first thing Satan did was he questioned God's goodness. And Satan causes us to doubt God's goodness. So God had told Adam that he was free to eat from any tree in the garden apart from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what Satan does is he takes the one boundary that God has created and he exaggerates it in the form of a question to make God sound really mean. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? He poses the question in a, met, in a way that makes him seem like he's Eve's advocate, like he is on her side. Can you really not eat from any tree? I mean, how stingy is God? It's a really subtle manipulation. He's not so brazen as to say, oh my goodness, God is just awful, isn't he? I mean, can you believe he's keeping something so good but so small from you? If he'd done that, Eve may well have just turned to the snake and said, who are you to question God? Are you out of your tiny mind? He gave us all the breath of life. Everything we see has been made by him and it is beautiful. No, the devil doesn't do that. Instead, he sows seeds of doubt about God's goodness by making God seem unreasonable. He asks a question that is actually really flattering to Eve because it implies that she actually knows more than God because God is not really making sense. He's basically saying, why would God say that? And we all have questions sometimes. I know many of us have asked, I know I have asked, why God? Why does God allow? Why does God forbid? Or how about this? Why did God put the tree there if he knew what was going to happen? We have been told that everything God has made was good. Therefore, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not bad. It was, in fact, good. The tree was, in fact, a gift. It gave man freedom, 
because it gave man the ability to choose, to choose to trust God or to choose not to trust God. Not having the tree would mean not being able to choose. But God had put a boundary around that tree for man's protection. Like many good things God has made, like sex. That is a gift from God, but he's put a boundary around it. He's saying the place for this to be enjoyed is between a man and a woman in marriage. Like work, God is, has made work to be a good thing, but he's put a boundary around it. There are times of working, but there is time when you need to rest. God had put a boundary around that tree because he knew what the consequences would be if they ate the fruit. He knew that they would have a knowledge of good and evil, but only from personal experience of doing evil. And they would therefore be separated from God. I want my kids to gain knowledge. I want my kids to understand the world, but I don't want them to gain it from having lived through horrendous personal experiences. Our greatest problem is that we want to be free to choose, but we want God to be responsible for our choices. So we ask questions like, why did God allow the snake to come into the garden? Well, this chapter doesn't tell us. Instead, the snake and the tree present us with the truth about the responsibility that comes from having freedom. So let's just get back to the story now. So the devil has sown seeds of doubt about God's goodness into Eve's mind, and now this is what happens. God's words start to get distorted. By exaggerating God's words and making Eve feel like she's got the ability to question them, she then starts to redefine God's words. When he asks whether it's true that she can't eat from any tree, she answers his question by saying this. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. God had not said that they would die if they touched the fruit. But now Eve has begun to change what God has said. And the truth is getting confused and she is more open to the snake's lies. So after creating doubt about God's goodness, after creating confusion about his words, Satan then lies. He comes and makes a false promise. He then uses the oldest lie in the book, the one that we have all fallen for, the one that says, you will be better off if... And you know what? You can get away with it. He says this, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Children are terrible liars, aren't they? Um, if any of you have got kids, you've probably noticed that. And as we've all been children, we probably know it to be true. Um, and I can remember a time when I was probably about five, um, being given some money to go down to the shops to buy a ball. So me and my big brother, we went to the corner shop. When we got there, we decided that actually we wanted sweets. We bought sweets. We ate them on the way home. And when we got back, mum said, where's the ball? We said that we had lost the ball on the way home. Mum said, okay, where's the money? We said, we've lost the money too. Do you know what? It wasn't a very convincing lie because we had sticky fingers, blue tongues and sugar all over our faces. Kids are rubbish at lying, but you know what? The devil is really good at lying. He is the father of all lies. And this was a really, really good lie. What he was saying was mixed in with truth. It was like a half-truth, but a total lie. 
when he said, you will not surely die by touching the fruit, by eating the fruit, it was, a, it was like a half-truth. Actually, when Eve ate the fruit, she didn't die in that moment. So Adam probably thought, oh, I think the snake is probably right. I think I'll have some too, because she hadn't immediately died, but they did go on to die. The devil said, when you eat of it, it's just that your eyes are going to be opened. Yeah, that is true. Their eyes were opened to good and evil. But the devil then says this, and then you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that is true, but that was a lie as well. By knowing good and evil, Adam and Eve did come to possess a degree of knowledge that God had, but it was a total lie that it would make them more like God. Whereas God knew good and evil because he is all-knowing and has never done anything wrong, Adam and Eve now come to know good and evil from first-hand experience of doing evil. And actually, the real twist in this lie is that God actually wants us to be like him. We've, made, we've been made in his image, but by gaining knowledge from disobeying him and therefore becoming evil, we become less like him, not more like him. So when God put the boundary around the tree, he was actually trying to guard us. He wanted us to be like him. Eating the fruit made us less like him. So how do Adam and Eve respond to the lie? says this in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And once the lie that God was withholding something good and actually they probably wouldn't die had taken hold of Eve's heart, Eve looks at the fruit and starts to consider all its benefits. It does look beautiful. It would taste really good to eat. And the desire to become like God takes hold. She's listened to the snake. She's now looking and she's now longing for more. Adam and Eve had been given dominion over all of creation, but they want more. Instead of being content to, to live with God's rule and reign, instead of delighting in the honour of reflecting him, they decide they want to rival him. Eve decides that she is now fit to decide and to declare what is good. And so with all her senses rushing together, having listened to the lies, it's a quick path for gratification. Eve decides to eat the forbidden fruit, hands some to Adam and he eats it too. It is such a tragedy. Paradise is ruined. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. But this isn't the end of the story. Ben is going to be picking up on how God steps in with grace and mercy next week. But what can we learn from this passage? How does this relate to us today? Well, the first thing to say is we are all tempted. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful so that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Now, being tempted is not wrong. Jesus was tempted, but he did not give in. The issue is, how do we respond? We face temptation today in exactly the same way as Adam and Eve. The devil twists God's words and he questions God's goodness. He flatters our egos and he whispers into our hearts that maybe we know more than our creator. He poses as our advocate and he makes false promises. He denies the reality of our responsibilities and consequences. And temptation will come from all of our senses, especially from what we look at and what we listen to. 
the devil doesn't just come like knocking on the door with a cape and with a trident. Hello, I'm here to tempt you. No, he's going to disguise himself in the everyday, in the ordinary, in the trivial. And he's going he's to pose as common sense in opposition to faith. So my questions to us all today are, what voices and ideas do you entertain and dwell on? Do you spend time dwelling on God's words or listening to the opinions of others? Where do you place your trust? Do you place it in what seems reasonable or do you trust God in everything? Or are there some parts of your life that are off limits? What half-truths are you currently entertaining? What lie are you swallowing? What good boundary, which you might even perceive as a limitation that God has put in your life, are you currently questioning? In what area of your life are you not content to reflect God, but instead are attempting to rival him by asserting that you know more? What the devil wants to do is to remove God from the throne of our hearts and to replace him with false gods because he cannot bear for God to be worshipped. He cannot bear for us to trust him. We've been created by God, so we owe him our worship. Not our songs, but our trust and our delight. But the gods of our day are called me, entitlement and more. And their lies pervade our culture. You have the right to decide. You deserve a treat. This will make you happy. And if you put your trust in these false gods, their lies promise great fulfillment. And you can forget about consequences because it's just about you. It's just about what you want. It doesn't matter if people have been exploited or abused to make that cheap T-shirt that you don't actually need. If you want it, you deserve it. You've got the right to be happy. Do these lies sound familiar? These gods will never bring satisfaction because they're snakes. They speak lies. Genesis 3 is actually all about worship because it's about who we trust, who we believe, who we say to be true. It's about the call on all of us to lift our eyes and fix our hearts on our creator and to live for him, which is impossible to do without trust. It says in Romans 1.25, men exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than their creator. That's what Adam and Eve did. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie from Satan, and they trusted in him. But Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. But in everything, acknowledge him, and God will make your path straight. We're called to trust God in everything. Temptation says it doesn't have to be everything. The trivial stuff doesn't matter. The serpent touched on the one apparently trivial thing that in Eve's life that she wasn't prepared to give over to God. What was she going to eat? But actually, it mattered. If we can't trust God in everything, in even the apparently trivial, then we don't really trust him at all. David Atkinson says this, Sin is the name given to the separation from God, which begins with abandoning the trust in God's goodness and love. I'm going to say that again. Sin is the name given to the separation from God, which begins with the abandonment of trust in God's goodness and love. God is always good, no matter what. He has created good boundaries and he is gracious to us when we fail. 
And when I was preparing this this morning, I felt God prompt me about two areas where people are battling with lies in their lives. And those two areas are sex and money. And I just want to call out some of the lies that people may be entertaining, that people may be battling with. The lies around porn. You'll be fine. There's no harm in one glance. No one's ever going to know. It's just a one-off. No, one's, no one is being hurt. And then the greatest lie of them all, you can't be forgiven. That is a lie. The Bible is really clear that if we confess, God is faithful and just and will forgive us. There's lies around money too, aren't there? There are people who are struggling financially. Maybe you've got debts. Maybe you've got a problem with your credit card. Maybe you're feeling tempted to steal. Maybe you're actually not wanting to trust God with your finances. I don't really want to give any money because then I'll have less for what I might need one day. Actually, you can trust God for everything he has promised to provide. There are so many temptations that we can all face, but there is hope for us all because Jesus has defeated the devil. And it says in James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee you. And this is an amazing promise. He will flee you. Okay? It's not a case of, oh, if I resist him, then maybe, maybe I'll be free of these lies. Maybe I'll be able to resist temptation. No. Resist the devil and he will flee you. So how do we resist? Well, we do what we were made to do. We worship. We S-I-N-G. We sing. We need to stop and shout out. If you are struggling with something, if you are struggling with temptation, if you feel like you're in a battle and you're losing, you just need to tell someone. There is no shame in struggling. There is no shame in temptation. Shout out for help. Say to somebody, I need help. We all need a saviour. I, we need to remember our identity. We are in Christ. We are God's children. And so we can trust God that he is always going to provide for us. We don't need to listen to the lies of the enemy. We don't need to put our trust in false promises. N. Now, don't worry, I do know how to spell the word no. I know it is with a K, but it worked better right now if we imagine it's spelled with an N. Know the truth. Jesus says in John 8.32, know the truth and the truth will set you free. We need to spend time getting to know God's word. There's so many different ways that you can do this. Some people just like good old-fashioned paper. They want to open their Bible and read it. But there's loads of other things that you can use. There's Bible apps. There's a super cool youth app that I just want to recommend called um, 418 Revolution. There's audio apps that you can use. Um, One of our friends at Encounter, he posts like a Bible verse every day on our group. So there's a whole load of stuff with the media that you can use. But do you know what? Some people don't like reading. Some people struggle to read. That's okay. You can get to know God's words by listening to worship music. That's why it's so important that we listen. Um, The things that we're listening to are filled with God's truth as well. And the last thing, G, is gratitude. Guard your hearts with gratitude. Put God on the throne of your heart every single day. Thank God for everything that he's given you, for his promises, for everything he's done for you, for what you know that he's going to do for you one day when you see him face to face. If we spend time filling our heart with gratitude, we are not going to be so tempted by the whispers and the promises of more, more, more. So I'm just going to end now by saying this. We were made for beauty. We were made to know peace. 
We were made for joy. But the only place and the only way that we can find these things is by trusting in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to take a moment to pray now. Father God, I thank you so much that you made a beautiful world for us to live in and that you have made us in your image, that you love us. And I thank you that through Jesus, we can know perfect peace. Thank you, God, that you are totally good and that when we put our trust in you, you will never let us down. I pray, Father, that you would help us where we are struggling, God, where there's temptation and where lies may have got hold of our hearts. I ask you, Jesus, to come and speak truth into our hearts right now. Help us to trust in you and live lives that reflect who you are, our good and wonderful God. Amen. I hope that you have a great day.